Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session thanks to cpdjunkie.com.au. When we sign up to become dentists and study the art of teeth, we learn things like head and neck anatomy, prosthodontics to understand the shape and contour of teeth, orthodontics so that we learn where the teeth should sit in relation to the face. But apart from the aesthetic and engineering side of teeth, we too often forget about the function of the teeth and the role of the oral cavity as part of a long winding tube that we all call the digestive system. With me here is oral medicine specialist, Dr. Michelle Kang, and we talk here about the chronic condition that can very much present itself in the oral cavity, inflammatory bowel disease. To find out more, stay tuned. A common question that I get is, how does the mouth actually link in with the digestive system? So I guess the first place to start off with is there's an anatomical link. So you can almost think of the oral cavity being sort of the entrance of the GI system, where we have a tube that's lined by mucous membrane that starts off in the mouth and then leads to the rest of the GI tract. So you've got this tube from the oral cavity that goes posteriorly to the oropharynx, and then it keeps on going to the esophagus, stomach, duodenum, and the intestine onwards. And there's a wide range of function that the GI system has. So as the, you know, thinking about the digestive system, digestion is, is one of the main functions. And with that, we have breakdown of various foods and, and nutrients. So we have absorption and excretion, which is really important. But also we have synthesis of various different hormones, growth factors and cytokines. Also, the GI system is a really important defensive system that's incorporated. So thinking about our basic physiology, the innate and acquired immune systems. And if you think about all the different types of foods and drinks that enter our mouths, the GI tract actually has a larger source of foreign antigens that enters the body. And I guess with that, we do have quite a robust intestinal microbiota, and that has a wide range of functions. And as you can imagine, they have a huge role with nutrition, absorption, and developing the immune system, and you name it. And then you, you can think of if there is disruption of that microbiota, then there can be association with various different types of GI and systemic diseases. And it's quite interesting where the mouth can actually serve as a direct window inside into what's happening at the rest of the GI system. So when I sort of teach this topic, um, certainly to my dental students, I say that there can be oral manifestations of different GI conditions and you may actually be that clinician that that is the first person that picks up a disease process that's happening in the GI system, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. So I guess you mentioned how you've got these foreign antigens coming into the body. And so it's got to have a pretty robust immune response. So leading on to that, what exactly is inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah, so inflammatory bowel disease, it's a term that's used for a family of clinically diverse conditions, and that's characterized by chronic and recurrent inflammation of the GI tract. And there's two main types when we think of inflammatory bowel diseases or IBDs. So we've got ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And you can actually differentiate between the two based on the location or where that disease process actually occurs the extent of inflammation in terms of the length and also the depth of the inflammation. So I guess if we think about the location in terms of the intestine, ulcerative colitis, really you find it in the colon and rectum, whereas Crohn's disease, it can actually occur in any site in the GI tract. 
um, with the inflammation, the extent or the length in ulcerative colitis, there's this continuous inflammation that occurs throughout the GI tract. Whereas in Crohn's disease, you have these what we call skip lesions, or there's this sort of mix of mucosa that has that inflammation, and then you have normal mucosa and it sort of alternates. And also we think about the depth of inflammation. So ulcerative colitis, it's only limited to the mucosa where the inflammation occurs, whereas Crohn's disease, the inflammation extends to involve the full thickness of the bowel wall. Now, it is worth noting that about 10% of inflammatory bowel disease cases, we can't actually sort of definitively diagnose whether it's ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. So there's a bit of an overlap. And I think this is a bit sort of cute, pun intended, where that sort of crossover condition is actually called colitis of undetermined type in etiology. So if we put that into acronym, it's C-U-T-E or, or CUTE. So there's a bit of an oh, overlap that good. can occur. Very yeah. Good. If we go into the epidemiology, so according to Crohn's and Colitis Australia, more than 75,000 Australians actually have IBD. And they quote that approximately one in 250 people aged five to 40 years of age have IBD. Now, in terms of what exactly causes IBD, so thinking about the pathogenesis, we don't actually understand it fully, but we think that it's that complex interaction between the traditional sort of genetics, um, environmental triggers, but also the role of bacteria and the host immune response. So I guess if I give a quick example of genetics, so there is a positive family history association. So that's the largest independent risk factor for IBD development. So they about one in five to one in six patients with IBD actually have first degree relatives with the disease. So I suppose if you see um, or have a patient in your sort of dental clinic that has IBD, it may be worth asking, do you actually have a family member that have IBD? And chances are that they may actually do. There's other sort of environmental sort of triggers that they sort of talk about. Again, we still don't know 100%, but things like psychological, so increased relapse with things like chronic stress and other sort of psychological factors. We also think about bacteria. So there's some alteration of that bacterial flora. And also, last but not least, the host immune response. So I guess one sort of possible pathogenesis is we have inflamed, really leaky mucosa in the GI tract, and then the bacteria actually translocate to the intestinal mucosa, and that triggers an acquired immune response by sharing sort of the epitopes between the intestinal bacteria and synovia. And when I mean by epitope, it's a part of the foreign protein that's capable of stimulating an immune response. Now, I guess another thing to think about is, well, what do we expect to see? So the clinical signs and symptoms of IBD. So there are certainly a lot of extraoral manifestations. So the one most obvious thing is the GI tract. So, you know, some symptoms patients may complain of is having abdominal pain, sort of diarrhea, possibly leading to weight loss. And certainly when I have patients in my clinic that I suspect they may actually have IBD or that's part of my sort of differential diagnosis, I do actually ask them, have you actually experienced any abdominal cramps, any diarrhea? And that's one of my screening questions that I go through with my patients. There certainly are other external manifestations, not just the GI tract. So there can be inflammation at various different parts of our body. So one place is the eye. So you can have lots of different tissues of the eyes that can be inflamed. So uveitis, conjunctivitis, and, and a lot more. Also joints. So um, patients may actually complain of um, joint pain. So um, arthralgia. There are some associations with conditions like ankylosing spondylitis. 
And there's also skin manifestation. So there are distinct presentations that may occur. So one called erythema nodosum, where there are really tender bumps and nodules on the skin. So that may be something that you actually notice um, before you look in the mouth. If you do an extra examination, just note some changes in the visible skin. You may actually note some manifestations with your patients. Other um, extraoral sort of skin manifestations is what we call pyoderma gangrenosum, bit of a tongue twister. So it's characterized by large, very painful ulcers. So again, it may be worth asking your patients if they've noticed not just any changes inside the mouth, but outside the mouth, including the skin as well. And there's lots of other sort of systems and organs that may be affected as well. And I guess the big thing that we're interested perhaps as dental practitioners is intraoral. What what manifestations um, can there be? And I guess before I sort of jump into that, I think it's worth thinking about, well, why do oral manifestations actually occur? I think there's a couple of different reasons. First of all, it's the chronic inflammation. So the disease process that we actually see in IBD, but also from things like malnutrition, things like from reduced food intake. So if I was a patient that had lots of gastric cramps and diarrhea, I may not actually want to eat as much. So that may lead to reduced food intake, also reduced absorption. So if you think about there's so much inflammation happening in the GI tract that may actually impede good absorption of various nutrients and also increased metabolic needs from all that sort of hyper sort of catabolism from the active inflammation that may actually lead to malnutrition as well. And I think the third sort of possible reason why oral manifestations occur is drug adverse effects. So there are lots of different drugs that are used to manage IBD. And when we think about drugs, you know, possible adverse reactions and effects that may actually present in the oral sort of cavity as well. Going specifically into sort of IBD oral manifestations or oral lesions, there are some presentations that are more commonly seen in Crohn's disease, more commonly in all sort of colitis and also a bit of an overlap. So right very briefly, you know, the manifestations that have an overlap, so we can see it in Crohn's or sort of colitis, are these aptus-like ulcers. So certainly, Hayden, you'd be very familiar with aptus ulcers that we would have gone through in lectures. Yeah. So they have these sort of characteristics. So it's an ulcer that classically, it looks round or ovoid. It has really well-circumscribed margins. It has an erythematous halo and an ulcer floor that sort of has this yellow or gray color. So we may see ulcers that kind of look like aptus ulcers, so what we refer to as aptus-like ulcers. And it's quoted that up to around sort of 10% of patients with ulcerative colitis may have these aptus-like ulcers and up to even 30% for our Crohn's disease patients. Also, there are these presentations uh, called pyostomatitis vegetans. Tends to be a little bit more uh, common in ulcerative colitis, but can present in either ulcerative colitis or Crohn's where you have these pustular eruption of these mouth and skin folds. Other presentations can be angular colitis, and patients may actually complain of submandibular lymphadenopathy. Now, just running through Crohn-specific lesions, um, patients may have a lot of swelling, so around the lips, the cheeks, the face, and that's certainly something you may pick up as you do your extra um, examination. Also, patients may have these really deep linear ulcers. When you actually palpate it, it feels really firm or boggy. It, it just has this very characteristic texture to it. 
Also, patients may have lots of fissuring of the lips and the tongue. So a lot of mucosal tags, so including the sort of labial and buccal vestibule. And also this really interesting mucosal presentation, what we describe as this cobblestoning and mucosal fold. So if you think about cobblestone paths that you um, sort of sort of walk through or you see around the streets, it's it has this sort of really undulating surface that looks like cobblestoning that you may actually see in the mucosa. So commonly in the buccal mucosa, but may affect other mucosal surfaces as well. And finally, a presentation of what we call mucogingivitis. So the gingiva just looks really swollen, edematous, granular and hyperplastic. So that certainly can be another possible oral presentation of Crohn's disease. And I guess one thing to note, last but not least, is for most patients with IBD, it's the intestinal manifestations that precedes oral manifestation. So most it's the it's the intestines that, that really have the presentation first. But up to about sort of five to ten percent of patients, oral manifestations may actually occur before the intestines. So again, you know, coming back to the point as dental practitioners, you may actually note changes in the mouth before a patient is actually formally diagnosed with IBD. Yeah, so that's something um, worthwhile having in the back of our minds. As dentists and dental students, we all have difficult days. You may experience workplace or training demands that have a direct impact on your physical, emotional and psychological health and well-being. This is exactly what dental practitioner support is for. It's a completely confidential and independently run service that's funded by the Dental Board of Australia in an effort to support practitioners and dental students right across the country. Sometimes people call just at the end of a long day to debrief, but sometimes they call because there's more challenging things going on. Dental practitioner support is there for you in these times to give proactive advice, help you improve your health and well-being before there are major concerns. We all need a helping hand sometimes, and it's okay to ask for help. So if you find you need it, call 1-800-377-700 or visit the website dpsupport.org.au. They have loads of great information to get you started. When a patient tells us they have IBD, what things can we expect them to be going through and what kind of questions should we ask? Thinking about patients with known inflammatory bowel disease, we may know it from the patient's medical history. If we go through it with um, the patient in the beginning, I guess it's important to establish what type of inflammatory bowel disease they have. So is it Crohn's disease? Is it all sort of colitis? When and how was it actually diagnosed? So there's lots of different ways that it can be diagnosed. So there's screening blood tests, there's stool tests, and certainly colonoscopies and various biopsies that can be done with the gastroenterologist. So lots of different ways that it can be diagnosed. And also, you know, thinking about management. So how is it being managed? Who are the clinicians actually involved in their care? And very broadly speaking, goals of treatment for patients with IBD, they can include wanting to treat early. So reducing the sort of accumulated morbidity. So, you know, some of the goals that gastroenterologists may have is they're not just treating the symptoms, but beyond that. So they're trying to aim for mucosal healing. So they want to try to get in there as, as early as possible. And also thinking about all the inflammation that's happening in the GI tract, trying to reduce and control that. Also trying to eliminate a lot of the symptoms um, that can be quite uncomfortable for patients, but also minimizing the adverse effect, trying to maintain steroid-free remissions, and tr ultimately trying to prevent complications for patients. So, you know, if there is sort of ongoing IBD that, 
you know, may be quite severe, it may lead to hospitalization and quite significant surgery for patients. So trying to really minimize that for patients. There's different treatment approaches, so that this might be worthwhile sort of noting for our clinicians. So there are different phases. So things like there's you generally start off with induction treatment to try to get the disease under control, followed by maintenance. So patients may actually be able to indicate to you what stage of treatment that they're on as well. And also there's various different types of treatments. So there is things like enteral nutrition. So patients having their diets modified, that's one approach. There's also lots of different types of drugs or so different pharmacological approaches. There's surgery, depending on the extent of the disease that's progressed. But also, this is a little bit, bit of a question mark, but there is potential role for fecal microbiota transplant. So lots of different ways that it can manage. Do you want to add orthodontics to your general practice? So many patients today are looking for aesthetic outcomes and, and changes, things that we can do with things like aligners and fixed braces that can put the teeth where they need to be so we can be more minimal in what we do to those teeth. I know it's something I wanted to learn and personally I've gone down the path with OrthoEd doing the mini masters. I'm also getting treatment myself. I'm in aligners right now. If you're ready to go all in with orthodontics, you can go and do the mini masters with OrthoEd and Dr. Jeff Hall and at the end you can get a postgraduate diploma. But if you're starting off with smaller steps, they even have some online education including aligners and aligner courses that are standalone. In the COVID environment we're currently in, these courses have remained live and we can then go and do them in person later on. I really appreciate the way they've managed that and I'm still getting tons of value. OrthoEd gives you an understanding from the foundational level. You understand aligners as well as fixed braces, the mechanics and all the things in between. If you're about to start your orthodontic journey, check out dentalheadstart.com slash orthoed to get 10% off their entire range. You might even run into me at one of the courses. How would you best describe the the role of the dentist in managing a patient with inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in terms of as uh, well as dental practitioners, the first thing to establish is what stage of the diagnosis um, and management are we seeing the patients? So are we seeing them before they've been formally diagnosed or they're currently undergoing investigations or have they started treatment? So things like induction maintenance therapy. So that's that's one thing to determine. And I guess then thinking about a dental treatment plan, you know, once we have our treatment plan, then thinking, well, do we actually need to do we need to modify this based on what stage of the diagnosis management pathway that the patient is on? So I guess, you know, the very, very key concepts that I always teach my students and always talk about is basic principle when we go through medical history, you know, what thinking about the most invasive treatment that we can do for patients, thinking, well, you know, will the patient actually stop bleeding? So, you know, based on what they're going through or what they have in their medical history, including, say, IBD, is there any sort of impairment with them achieving hemostasis? Because we want our patients to stop bleeding. And then the second point is, will the patient actually heal? So thinking about, for example, there's different forms of immunosuppressive therapy that patients may un undergo with IBD. So thinking if they are, then we need to ask ourselves, will will the patient actually heal properly? Will they stop bleeding? Another example of different treatments that I could give is patients may actually take high-dose corticosteroids as part of their therapy. So then as a dental practitioner, what I want to think is, okay, well, you know, getting more details about, well, tell me more about 
you know, when you've had high, you know, corticosteroids, what dosage did you have for how long? And then thinking about, well, what are the possible adverse effects of corticosteroids? And one thing could be corticosteroid-induced osteoporosis. And then naturally we start to think, well, okay, osteoporosis, how is that managed? One thing could be anti-resorptors. So the next question that I'll ask patients is, have you taken any anti-resorptors at any point, like currently and previously? And if they say yes, then I think, okay, well, there's possible risk of medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaw. So it's one of those things where, you know, you you want to sort of have an, you know, ask the right questions, have an understanding and certainly get the right details about what management patients have had. And then thinking about, well, if a patient has had X, Y, Z, then what other things could it lead to and how will that affect the dental treatment that I provide. And then I guess moving on to, as I mentioned, the oral manifestations of systemic disease. As I alluded to earlier, you may be the first person, first clinician that picks up the you know initial presentation of inflammatory bowel disease. So having that in your radar, but also that it may actually be a marker of disease activity. So I've previously been involved in management of a patient that had known IBD, but then you know there were there was a moment where the patient actually had a massive flare-up of their sort of symptoms, both in the sort of intestinal but also oral. So you know, as we were talking, you know, I, I knew the patient before how the mouth looked previously. And he was saying, look, I've got a lot of cramps. I I think something might be going on. And as soon as I looked in his mouth, there were a lot of these sort of oral presentations. So again, for me, it was a marker of, okay, there's a lot more clinical disease happening at the moment for the patient. Also managing adverse effects. I've already talked about things like uh, different drugs and the adverse effects that it can have. So thinking about, you know, Rondrus that we talked about, but also opportunistic infections. So if patients undergo immunosuppressive therapy, that they, they may be more susceptible things like, say, oral candidiasis, um, HSV, VZV infection. So, you know, just having that sort of in the back of our minds and, and screening for that. Also various different drugs that may have adverse reactions like erythema multiforme, Stephen Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis. So again, you know, just sort of bearing in mind and having those different possibilities just as we sort of see our patients. And I guess, you know, for our new graduate clinicians that are listening out there or any clinicians, to be honest, when in doubt, um, I always say, you know, don't be afraid to speak with a senior clinician or a specialist. So if you notice something that you think, I don't quite know what this is, or, or I'm, I'm a bit worried about this, don't be afraid to reach out. Dental, when I say specialist, whether it's a different dental specialist, or say even a gastroenterologist that may be managing the patient. So, you know, don't be afraid to reach out. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.